Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. Scott here. If there is one thing I don't like about summer and stargazing, it is that it seems to take forever to get dark. But as we move into September, we are benefiting from being more than two months away from the date of longest amount of daylight, and night is coming on at somewhat more reasonable evening hours. By about 8.30 or so, it is time to walk out onto my front porch to see what I can see. One object I like to look for each night that I am out is the Big Dipper. The pattern of stars stands out quite easily and can also be used to find directions as darkness falls. The Dipper is found low in the northwest at this time of the year, so close by trees may hide part or all of it from view, making it necessary to step around a bit to give it a clear view of that direction. Once it is found, the front two stars of the Dipper, the pointer stars, provide a line in the direction of the north star, Polaris. I start with the one marking the bottom of the front of the Dipper's bowl and imagine the line to be drawn toward the one marking the lip of the bowl. That line continues on to Polaris. Polaris is not the brightest star in the sky, but it does remain fixed throughout the year. It is at the same height above the horizon from one's location and in the same direction. With that knowledge, I know that when I step out on my front porch, the direction I am looking is generally north. If I look past the North Star on over toward the northeastern sky, at about the same height as the Big Dipper, I notice the W-shaped pattern of Cassiopeia the Queen. Cassiopeia is better seen later in the fall when it can be found higher up in the northeast, but the W-shaped pattern does stand out easily in the early evening sky, so finding it is not too difficult at this time of the year. If I scan to my left, I now am facing west, the direction I generally like to look for planets. There is a bright star in that direction, but quickly it can be determined to be a star called Arcturus. I can determine this to be the case because if I look at the curve of the Big Dipper's handle, the curve is toward Arcturus. I follow an arc to get to Arcturus. But my hunt for planets is not in vain because as I face Arcturus in the western sky, a brighter point of light catches my eye. That is Jupiter, the largest of the planets of our solar system. Just below Jupiter is another somewhat bright star. That star is Antares, the brightest star in Scorpius the Scorpion. During the first week of September, the moon will sweep past these two, a bit closer to Jupiter than Antares, but still acting as a marker for the pair. The moon is closer to each the evening of September 5th, and the three make for a nearly isosceles triangle that evening. The longer legs of the triangle will be from the moon to Antares, and from Jupiter to Antares, with a short leg being between Jupiter and the moon. Not to be outdone, Saturn also has a close brush with the moon. Saturn shines brighter than the stars in its part of the sky, though much fainter than Jupiter. Watching the moon on the evenings of the 7th and the 8th allow me to actually note the movement of the moon, for on the 7th the moon will be west of Saturn, by the next night the moon will be east of Saturn. With the moon nearby, spotting the constellation that Saturn is near is a bit of a challenge. But as Saturn will be in that same part of the sky night after night, 
Once the moon has left the area, I can pick up the dimmer stars of Sagittarius the Archer. A part of that constellation that is most noticeable actually looks like a teapot, with three stars marking the lid, four the handle, and three the spout. Saturn sits above the handle of this teapot and outshines the stars there. Speaking of the moon, as the moon gets fuller as we approach mid-month, it will become this year's harvest moon. The harvest moon is defined to be that full moon that is closest to the autumnal equinox. The autumnal equinox is the first day of autumn here in the northern hemisphere. The sun appears to be directly over the equator of the earth, and the sky appears to be crossing the celestial equator, the projection of the earth's equator on the sky. This year, the autumnal equinox is on September 22nd, 23rd, and the full moon will be on September 13th and 14th, so it becomes the harvest moon. Generally speaking, the moon rises on average about 50 minutes later from day to day. Because of the geometry of the Earth, Moon, and Sun at this time of the year, the moon rises a bit quicker than this, getting it into the sky a bit quicker after sunset. The harvest moon gets its name because it was an aid to farmers harvesting their crops in the earlier times. In rising a bit quicker than the average 50-minute interval, it could provide extra light for farmers after the sun has set. The full moon is prettier to watch as it comes up over the horizon, but it can be a detriment to stargazing. High haze combined with all of that moonlight pretty much wipes out the light of stars. With only the brightest to see, finding constellations that contain those bright stars is a real challenge. Something else that tends to be noticed about the rising moon is its orange-red color as it rises. Some have thought this was due to a lunar eclipse, but the real cause is the atmosphere of the Earth. Near the horizon, we are looking through a thicker layer of air than when we look straight up. The more air that is between us and a light source, like the moon or the sun, the more blue light that can be scattered out of our line of sight and up into the sky above. We can see that scattered blue light coming down on us from all parts of the sky, but the light coming directly to us from the light source has had that same blue light removed. Mostly orange and red light can pass through that scattered layer of air and dust to reach our eyes, hence a reddening of the light source. So when we see that reddish setting sun or that reddish rising moon, it is our air that contributes to the color by removing some color and allowing other colors through. We notice it more at this time of the year because it's getting darker sooner and we are still likely to be up and around, perhaps even outside. So it is more noticeable when we are more likely to be up and about to see the phenomenon. One other noticeable pattern of stars that can be found high overhead, even if the moon is present in the sky. That pattern is called the Summer Triangle. The Summer Triangle is not a constellation. It is known as an asterism. Asterisms are collections of stars that make a recognizable shape or pattern. The Big Dipper is an asterism, as is the teapot that is part of Sagittarius the Archer. Asterisms are useful because, in many instances, the constellations themselves can pose a challenge. Few actually look like their namesake, but if we know an asterism is related to them, the asterism may help us find those elusive constellations. The Summer Triangle is made of three stars from three different constellations. The brightest and the most western of the three is Vega, in the constellation Lyra the Harp. East of Vega is Deneb, in the constellation Cygnus the Swan. The southern star of the three is Altair, in Aquila the Eagle. Lyra is a small, squashed rectangle of stars just south of Vega. As a harp, 
One can imagine Vega being a jewel embedded in the harp, the rectangle of stars being the harp itself. Deneb marks the tail of a large swan in flight. At this time of the year, the swan is pictured flying south, appropriate as we see birds flying south as winter comes to call. Stretching south of Deneb is a line of three more stars of about the same brightness. Sweeping out from the first star south of Deneb are a pair of stars, again of nearly the same brightness, marking the outstretched wings of this swan. Altair marks the head and neck of Aquila the eagle. Aquila requires a bit more imagination to see, perhaps even a good star map, to lay out its wings swept out away from Altair and its stubby body south of that star. Planets, the harvest moon, bright stars, asterisms, and constellations, lots to occupy the evening as summer slowly loses its grip on the sky and temperatures are much less impressively hot. Hey, some exciting news from Australia. They just recently finished sequencing the genome of the koala. Sometimes these animals are called the koala bear because they do look like a bear. They've got a stout body, heavy, thick fur, a large head, rounded ears, and a very prominent nose. But they really aren't related to bears. The closest relative of the koala are the wombats. And they're also somewhat related to kangaroos possums, wallabies, and Tasmanian devils. All of these animals, of course, are marsupials. Marsupials are a subclass of mammals. The primary defining characteristic of marsupials is that they give birth to relatively undeveloped young that reside in a pouch that's located on the mother's abdomen, and they're there for six or seven months. In koala, birth occurs only 35 days after conception, and the young still lack a proper immune system, so they get that immunity from the mother's milk that's provided in the pouch. So marsupial parents spend a whole lot more time and effort nurturing and nursing their young after birth compared to placental animals like people, dogs, mice, elephants, etc., Placental parents invest more of their time and energy into the pregnancy itself and not what happens after birth. There are only some 334 species of marsupials still alive on Earth right now, and 70% of these marsupials reside in Australia, Tasmania, or New Guinea. Now, we do have one species of marsupial that is native to Kentucky. It's the opossum, or possum. As you might already know, koalas mostly live in trees, and they feed almost exclusively on eucalyptus trees. Now, eucalyptus trees are native to Australia, so we really don't have them here in Kentucky. But they're quite common in the western states. You see a lot in California. But those trees have been introduced to the west. They're not native. What you might not know is that these eucalyptus trees contain toxic chemicals that actually have to be detoxified by the koala. Researchers really don't know how that works, but that's what has to happen. And then eucalyptus is really not a very nutritious plant, so koalas really don't expend much energy other than resting and sleeping, which is which is what they do for about 22 hours a day. And then the other few hours every day is they're just eating eucalyptus. So being marsupials and living solely on eucalyptus makes koala a pretty strange beast which is why biologists in Australia set about sequencing its entire genome. 
Another reason why scientists want to determine the genetic makeup of koala is because they are a threatened species. As a whole, Australia has very high extinction rates for animals, and koala populations are declining. In southern Australia, the koala population has gotten so small that there's concern now about the population not being as genetically diverse as it should be, because that leads to inbreeding. And inbreeding is bad for the population because it causes the accumulation of deleterious genes. That's basically why we're not supposed to be having children with our cousins. You get the accumulation of deleterious alleles. The reason koala populations are getting so small used to be mostly due to hunting because the pelts are valuable. But now it's due to habitat destruction, urbanization, and disease. There's a retrovirus causing disease in koala, for instance. This retrovirus was probably brought to Australia via rodents. And there's also a big problem in koala with chlamydia, which was probably introduced from sheep and cattle. No one knows exactly how this worked, but they thought maybe fecal contamination from sheep or cattle got onto the eucalyptus leaves. Now, chlamydia is caused by an infectious bacteria, In humans, it's a common sexually transmitted disease, but in koalas, it can cause blindness, infertility, bladder disease, and death. More than half of the koalas in some parts of Australia appear to have chlamydia, but how they respond to this disease and whether they even show signs of the disease at all appears to have something to do with the koala genome, their genetics. Now, there's a vaccine for chlamydia that they can give to koala, And so when they decided to sequence the koala genome, researchers used two populations of animals. Some of the animals responded well to the vaccine, but others didn't. And in doing this, when they compared these two populations, they identified three genes that seemed to make a difference in whether an animal responded to the vaccine or not. This information could be useful because conservationists can now improve vaccines as well as perhaps predict whether they'll be useful in certain populations of koala. And what does it mean to determine the genome of an individual? Well, if you remember about DNA, DNA bases are either guanine, thymine, adenines, or cytosines, and it's the order of those four types of bases that make up what is called DNA sequence. Now, people who communicate in the English language use the 26 letters of the English alphabet, and they can create thousands of different words, sentences, and paragraphs, and books with those 26 letters. But DNA only has four letters, C, T, G, and A. Those are the four bases. But they can still form a myriad of sequences, all different lengths with different combinations of just those four bases, just like with the English language. That's what molecular biologists are doing when they determine an organism's genome. They're figuring out the exact order of those four bases in each of that individual's chromosomes. Now, these researchers used a next-generation method for sequencing the koala DNA. Next-generation method involves synthesizing koala DNA on a plate containing thousands of little wells, little holes, where thousands of tiny DNA reactions are taking place. In each reaction, as each DNA base gets synthesized using koala DNA as a guide or template, it produces tiny little flashes of light that a very sensitive camera can detect. And then all that information is sent to a computer for analysis. 
The bottom line is that next-gen sequencing is faster and less expensive than the older methods used to originally determine the human genome back in the 1990s. Next-generation sequencing is a very powerful technique. I could tell you that these genome projects are large. The koala genome is 3.4 billion bases long. That's longer than the human genome, which is 3.2 billion bases long. And koalas have some 26,000 genes which is a few thousand more than people have. The project included the efforts of 54 scientists from 29 different institutions located in seven countries. And all of this data is freely available on the web. Just do an internet search for the term Koala Genome Consortium and you can examine it. And I'll try to link it on our Facebook page too. In addition to determining the koala genome, which tells them the DNA sequence of all the individual genes it has, they also examine which genes are actually expressed in different parts of the body. In other words, they determine which genes are important to the functioning of the different tissues and organs of the body. I already mentioned that they discovered three different genes involved in how the body responded to that chlamydia vaccine, but they also looked at the genes for making the enzymes that detoxify eucalyptus leaves so that they can actually eat them. For that, they looked at the cytochrome P450 monooxygenase gene. Now, these cytochrome P450 genes occur in most living organisms. They're in plants and animals and fungi and bacteria. But they found that the genetic structure of the cytochrome P450 gene in koala was really different compared to placental mammals like us. The koala version of the cytochrome P450 gene was larger due to an expansion of the gene. They also found evidence for very high levels of this enzyme in koala livers, which are naturally involved in detoxifying the body. This all means that they now have a better idea about why koalas can survive eating a toxic plant, eucalyptus, while other animals can't. This helps explain why koalas don't respond as well to medicines that are normally given to animals for pain relief. That pain relief medicine gets broken down really quickly by their livers. Same thing with antibiotics that are given to treat chlamydia. The antibiotics are degraded really quickly by the liver before they can actually work. They examined some other sets of genes too. For instance, the genes involved in koala ovulation. Since that is so different in marsupials versus placental animals, ovulation in koalas appear to be at least partially induced by exposure to male semen. Apparently, semen coagulates inside the womb of the female koala following intercourse. It's a type of storage of semen, and that storage induces ovulation. After fertilization, when the early koala embryo is about the size of a kidney bean, it weighs a half a gram, it crawls into the mother's pouch to feed on the mother's milk for six or seven more months. Now, they looked at the genes involved in the production of mother's milk and found some unique characteristics. For instance, there's an abundance of antimicrobial proteins in the milk, but the protein composition of the mother's milk produced by the koala changes as the young develops. So the milk changes according to the nutritional and immunological needs of the young. And since eucalyptus leaves are toxic due to all the weird chemicals that the plant naturally produces, they also looked at the ability of the koala to taste and smell their food. Koalas have six versions of a gene that's involved with the ability to smell. 
Humans and mice and dogs only have one version of this gene. Koalas have six. It's thought that these extra genes might contribute to the koala's ability to discriminate in whatever it's thinking about eating. The koala taste bud receptors were also quite different, and they appear to have a duplication in a gene for a protein called aquaporin. And aquaporin probably has something to do with how they respond to moisture, water, in their food. So the Koala Genome Project has taught us a lot about the biology of these fascinating animals. Due to this project, they've now characterized molecular markers, which are specific DNA sequences, that could be used to track genetic diversity in different koala populations in Australia. And this could help in the work to preserve and protect this beautiful animal in the future. Dave here. Well, you don't know this about me, but I've been a fan of community radio my whole adult life. Back when I was living in Tucson, Arizona, one of my favorite radio stations there was KXCI 91.3 FM in Tucson, Arizona. KXCI was my WFMP back then. And now every time I go back to Tucson to visit, sure enough, I rent a car and I set the radio dial to KXCI. Yeah, I'm one of those guys who change the radio set buttons on their car rentals. Anyway, one of my favorite shows on KXEI is called Thesis Thursday. This show has been on the air since 2013, and it's basically a way of showcasing the research done by graduate and undergraduate students at my alma mater, University of Arizona. Yeah, I got my bachelor's degree and my master's degree at University of Arizona. And I worked as a staff scientist there for more than 10 years. Anyway, I contacted KXCI to ask permission to rebroadcast one of their episodes on our show, and they said yes. I thought you might enjoy hearing from young people who are pursuing a career in science, what they're doing, how they got involved, and what they're planning on doing with their degrees once they are finished. Today's rebroadcast is a short interview with Tanya Rodriguez, who is pursuing a Ph.D. in environmental engineering at the University of Arizona. Now, Tanya is introduced by Dr. Monica Ramirez-Andriata, who is Assistant Professor of Environmental Science at U of A. So here it is, the Thesis Thursday interview with Ms. Rodriguez that was originally broadcast on KXCI on October 17, 2018. Hello and good day and welcome to KXCI's Thesis Thursdays. My name is Monica Ramirez Andrada and I'm an assistant professor of soil, water, and environmental science at the University of Arizona. Very excited to interview and learn about the work from Tania Rodriguez. Tania, how are you doing today? Fine, thank you. Great. What is your degree program? I'm starting the PhD in environmental engineering at the Department of Chemical and Environmental Engineering. And who are your advisors in that department? It's Dr. Saez and Dr. Bitterton. Let's talk about your research. What are you doing? I'm currently studying the airborne pollution from mining operations, Superfund sites okay. in the southern Arizona. What type of pollution are we looking at? We are looking at pollution from particles that are transported by air. And then mining operations generate principal two types of okay. particles, on coarse and fine. Coarse particles are particles that are like half of the weight of a hair. A human hair. A human like, hair. Okay. Wow, And super small. fine particles are really small, like 0.1 micrometers. So we 
are interested in learning how these different size of particles has uh, contaminants as like lead and arsenic, because these ones can cause uh, health effects. Smaller particles, like really fine particles, they can travel deeper into the lungs and go to the stream blood, and mm-hmm. then they can cause a side effect. I'm looking how the lead and arsenic concentration change depending on the size. And we are doing sampling indoor and outdoor and compare those results, how much of the fine is going to go indoor and then how much of the cores are going to lost in the trouble. So you have basically a filter that's collecting particles at different sizes. And then you're actually then not only looking at the total mass, right, of the particles on the filter, but then you're characterizing and saying what is in it. So you're looking at the concentrations of lead and arsenic at these different sizes. That's correct. We can see how it's applicable to the protection of the environment and human health. Where do you see yourself once you graduate? What are you going to do with your doctorate? One of the things I can apply what I learned here back in Mexico and then collaborate with government institutions to make actions plans to reduce pollution in air any kind, either particles or gases. And then the other thing, I might going to find a postdoc position to get a deeper knowledge in another part. Like I would like to work with BOCs, organic, volatile organic compound. Pollution doesn't, doesn't recognize re- boundaries or borders. And so I think it's honorable and great to highlight that not only will you be an outstanding environmental scientist or atmospheric scientist in this case, but you will work to do binational research and collaboration to improve environmental health for all. Thank you so much, Tanya. That's awesome. Thank you. All right. So we know you work super hard in the field and dancing at home maybe when you're taking little breaks. So what do you listen to when you're working or hanging out? I listen either to pop music or classical music, and I really like, like, old-fashioned music like <laughs> I don't know like the Beatles or Frank Sinatra or oh. that kind of music awesome. like kind of old for my age but it's vintage that's okay it's know. whatever works for you well thank you so much for all your hard work and we are very happy to have you at the University of Arizona thank you that was an interview with Tanya Rodriguez who is working on her doctorate in environmental engineering at the University of Arizona in Tucson Thanks to Monica Ramirez-Andreata at U of A and Bridget Thum at KXCI 91.3 FM in Tucson, Arizona, for letting us rebroadcast this interview. We community radio stations need to stick together, so I recommend you check out this radio station. Just go to kxci.org on the web and see what they're up to. On a personal level, I can tell you I really like their Hawaiian music show called Mele o Hawaii. Anyway, see you later. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, 
So just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time. 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you. <laughs>